0: Nehemiah chapter 5, we begin at verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields Our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved. We are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses, and also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine and oil. We will give it back, they said. We will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way, may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise so may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the early governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine and all, of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, O my God, for I have done, for all I have done for these people. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, Beloved, as we come this afternoon to Nehemiah chapter 5, we have in God's providence uh, a situation in history, the history of God's people. It's really a case study that relates so closely To our text this morning, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. How could it relate? Well, when we remember that the fifth commandment applies much more broadly than just the relationships at home, but it also speaks of those sorts of relationships of authority and submission uh, in the church and in the state as well we can see how the leaders, the nobles, and the officials in the days of Nehemiah and before Nehemiah exasperated those under them. They provoked them to anger and outcry. It's exactly what we're reading. Ephesians 6.4 could be a, a theme verse here for Nehemiah chapter 5. Matthew Henry, the Puritan pastor in the uh, late 17th century, in the beginning of the 18th century, said of this chapter, Hard times and hard hearts made the poor miserable. Hard times and hard hearts. They were hard times, to be sure, as we'll see. But the real lesson here." Is about the sin of hard heartedness. Deuteronomy fifteen seven. It says, "If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard hearted or tight fisted toward them." Jesus in the New Testament said, the poor you will always have with you. That was in the context of him being there and going to the Father. Uh, But there will always be those who are poor and needy among us. Do we have the eyes to see them? Are our hearts hard toward them? These are some of the self-reflection questions that, should be coming to us as we read Nehemiah chapter 5. There's a great lesson for us here as well. However, it may be that hard times come about for the people of God, especially in the household of faith, but it goes for the poor outside of the church as well, but especially for those in the church. However, those hard times come about for people, even if it may in some way relate to uh, their own bad decisions or even sin, we need to watch out for our own hard hearts. But as we read Nehemiah chapter 5, Nehemiah himself is seen in this chapter to be, by God's grace, not only a wise leader, we'll see some of that wisdom, but a tender-hearted believer who leads by example, who's an example to the people of his day and an example to us in our day as well. So I thought a good sermon title as a reminder of this chapter for us would be changing Matthew Henry's statement just a little bit. Soft hearts, In hard times. By God's grace, soft hearts in hard times. And hopefully, at all times. Now, as we think about Ezra and Nehemiah, as we've been going through these books chapter by chapter, we've repeatedly read about opposition and persecution and trouble coming from the enemies of God's people. Those antagonistic forces from outside the people of God. But chapter five of Nehemiah stands as a great warning and lesson for us. Because here again, there is great trouble. But where's it coming from? It's coming from within. It has to do with the people themselves. It's not those on the outside. It's not outside the church. It's a problem arising from the people within the church, within the people of God, the nation of Israel. Someone said, if Satan can't destroy a work for God from the outside, he will try to damage it from within. Let's never forget that our biggest problem may be ourselves. The principle is that whenever whenever we act contrary to Scripture, we injure fellow believers, for we can't sin in isolation. Serious wrongdoing damages the unity and well-being of the people of God, and it must be dealt with. Uh, There's a whole sermon in that. Now the men... And their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Uh, The people of God were acting in a way that was causing great trouble. And bringing disgrace upon the people of God in the eyes of those who are watching. To watch out for how we are acting and living together as the people of God. The devil doesn't always need some sort of outside persecution if we're doing it to ourselves. Well, let's look more particularly here at this chapter. Uh, These were hard times, what made them hard times. A great outcry is heard at the beginning of the chapter. And it's hitting people in the most sensitive place, the home, the family. That's why in the opening verses, the mention is made of the wives that are are there uh, coming along as well to testify to what's going on and and what's happening to sons and daughters. Uh, The word famine is mentioned in verse 3. Some have suggested that if there's a famine in the land, perhaps that's related to what we read in the prophet Haggai, chapter 1, verse 9. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. There was a neglect, you remember, in the days of Ezra uh, for the people of God, and God said that would bring consequence, that he would discipline and chastise his people for that. And so maybe there's some relationship to that here as well. We don't know for sure. Some previous sin may be at work here. If that's so, we are reminded that even with repentance and genuine repentance, often serious, significant consequences can still remain. But there is a food shortage, a famine, and so no doubt high food prices. But there were added hardships as well. There was a whole domino effect here and a spiraling downward. In verse 4, it says that high taxes still had to be paid. They needed to be buying their food. They couldn't grow enough food for themselves. They had to buy food, spend money on that, but they still had to pay their taxes. And so money needed to be borrowed. And and in that situation, the interest rates were very high. That's the word usury that's used here. Uh, Exorbitantly high interest rates. There's some difficulty in translating consistently the Hebrew words here used for exacting and interest and lending. But the general scenario seems clear enough. The people were forced in extremity to borrow money from their own Jewish brothers, and they were being lent that money at very high interest rates. Verses 10 and 11 speak of this, and uh, you notice there's an actual rate mentioned, one one hundredth part of, uh, the one hundredth part. The hundredth part of the money, grain, and new wine. Well, if you look at that and you say, well, one percent, that doesn't seem to be bad in terms of, uh, Of an interest rate, but in ancient times, historians tell us in ancient times, right up to Roman times, the common practice was to calculate interest monthly. So it's very likely that this was a monthly rate, and so then maybe look at something like 12%. But that's not the real point. Exodus 22-25, if you lend money to one of my people who among you is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. God had spoken to this. And now it's being rejected, forgotten, disobeyed. Whatever the actual rate was, the people were being put into dire straits. And as a result, they needed to, they were forced to sell their children into indentured slavery to pay the debts off. Some commentators suggest that the repetition of daughters in verse five, verse 5 suggests even more indignity that was suffered by the daughters of the people. You know, in Deuteronomy 28, 32, God had said, Your sons and daughters will be given to another nation, and you will wear out your eyes, watching for them day after day, powerless to lift a hand. But here it's happening at the hands of their own countrymen, fellow Jews. That's the real tragedy here. There was the usury, the selling into slavery of the children, but God had also prescribed the freeing of those slaves. These are the laws you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. That seems to be forgotten as well. People were in hard times, there seemed to be only hard hearts from many of their own people. Again, you need to watch out for hard hearts. Especially to see someone else's misery as an opportunity for you to gain something out of it. The people who were in these hard times knew themselves how wrong what was happening was. That's why there's this great outcry. In verse five, a basic humanity, common bonds of humanity that seem to have been forgotten. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, though our sons are as good as theirs, this common humanity and then a common brotherhood as the people of God seems to have been forgotten. You know, if it's even on that level of treating people as lesser human beings, we need to watch out. We can treat people that way. People who are in a different place than ourselves in society. I was watching some of the US Senate proceedings and they're examining appointees for various offices. And one person being questioned was asked this Do you name, know the name of the person who cleans your office? Do you know the name of the person who cleans your office? Or are they just so low you don't even consider reading them at all? To really watch out for that. Uh, We are the same, they're saying in verse 5. And we are in the church together. We are the people of God together. And so in verse six, it's not only the outcry of the people, but it's Nehemiah's response to these hard times. and We see it in verse six, and it's very clear. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. And again, we would put this in the category of a righteous anger. We shouldn't ever be complacent with sin. There can be righteous and should be at times righteous anger. But in his anger, Nehemiah didn't sin. He remained composed. Verse 7 says, I pondered them in my mind. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind. He didn't go madly rushing off to do something. Literally, the Hebrew says, my heart reigned over me. Or the New English Bible puts it, I mastered my feelings. There was an anger, it was righteous, but even then, Nehemiah took himself in hand. He didn't blow up or do something rash, but he also didn't look the other way and avoid confrontation, even with nobles and rulers, people of power and influence. His heart was soft, but his resolve was firm. What did he do? Well, we can just go through it very quickly and say uh, what these verses tell us he did. There was a clear statement of the sin. You are exacting usury from your own countrymen. Verse 7, clear statement of the sin. There was a public dealing with this because it was public sin. We should deal with sin privately where possible, but publicly when necessary. Sometimes people in the church think that nothing should ever be dealt with publicly. But if it's of a public nature, there are many things that need to be known before the people. Nehemiah appeals to reason and to their consciences before God. He says, we redeemed our people from the enemy, from the nations. Now only be sold again and to ourselves. Verse 8, what are we doing? It's contrary to reason. He also appeals to their conscience before God. The end of verse 10, no more usury. This is against God's law. In verse 9, he calls them to the fear of God and his law. You need to look up and realize what you're doing before the face of our God. And in the end of verse 9, he mentions the bad witness that it was to the world. To avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies. You who boast in the law. You dishonor God by breaking the law. As it is written. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles. Because of you. Romans 2.23 and 24. Now if Jesus said by this. Will all men know that you're my disciples. If you love one another. What message do we send. If we don't love one another. If we're hard-hearted. Toward others in the church. But we see that in this righteous anger and wise approach of Nehemiah, that God used it and God blessed it. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. They were under conviction from God. But also, we see the fruit of repentance, verse 11. We will, or verse 12, we will give it back, they said. We will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. That's really quite amazing. If you've dealt very much with people, and they've been doing something for a long time, they're gaining something from it, you confront them with these things, and they repent. They see the evil of it, they see the wrong of it. There's no arguing. There's no equivocating, there's no rationalizing. It's just you're right, we've done it. That's the way we need to be before God. In Romans, Paul says that we should all come before God and put our hands over our mouths, accountable in our sin, by God's grace to own up to it and to repent of it. They promised to do these things. We will give it back, they said. We will do as you say. But then Nehemiah summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. He wanted them to see that it wasn't just going to be a matter of, oh, yeah, we'll do that. But this was a serious, solemn oath and promise before God, not just easy words. And then Nehemiah enacts a prophecy, he kind of puts a prophecy in a very visible form when he shakes out his garment. And he basically is saying, God will judge in this matter. Ultimately, God will judge. In this way, may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep the promise. He leaves that ultimate judgment with God where it belongs. And all the people said, Amen. Everyone saw the rightness of the whole affair. In the last part of the chapter, we see that Nehemiah could not only lead by calling others to do what was right. He really led by example. These 12 years from 445 B.C. to 433 B.C. Nehemiah mentions the other leaders who had sinned in the same way before Nehemiah. Even though he had a right to be supported because he was governor, he didn't stand on his rights. The others lorded it over them. He didn't stand on his rights. He saw it was necessary in this situation, like Paul many years later, to forego his rights, to be an example, and to bless and help the poor. That's 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says, don't we have a right to food and drink as apostles? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? That's Peter, who had a wife. He has a mother-in-law. We read in, uh, in the Bible as well, and so... Uh, We don't see uh, a celibate clergy there at the beginning uh, by any means. But Paul's point is, if or he says, if others had this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. You see, we don't always have to stand on our rights. And there are times when we should not stand on our rights. Rights, rights, rights is the mantra of our culture. And rights are right. They're often right. But they're not always the right thing to do or to demand. Nehemiah's heart was soft. He had an obvious compassion and mercy toward these people who were in those hard times. Verse 18, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Ah, soft heart. Of course, as you think of this whole chapter, there is, there is a real picture of Christ here. Uh, The people are experiencing great poverty. In verse 5, they say we're powerless. The King James editorially adds, Neither is it in our power to redeem them. They couldn't redeem their children, they couldn't buy them back. They're powerless. This is an example, uh, an illustration of spiritual poverty. We don't have, we are powerless to redeem ourselves. But Christ, the King of Kings, did not stand on his rights. He made himself nothing, even to the point of the cross, to provide freely great blessing and a rich table for his people. He is our savior in doing that and our example. Nehemiah says that the other leaders, his previous leaders, lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act. We need to remember that soft hearts don't lord it over people. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked, Psalm 82 says. Elders, don't lord it over. Have a soft heart and your examples to the flock. As was Nehemiah. He was not just not greedy. He was also generous. He sets this this table. He never demanded the food allotted to the governor, but he set this table for those who would come. There was also a great generosity flowing out of his soft heart. He'd have soft hearts toward people in hard times, toward the poor, in the church especially. You think of the book of Acts, how they had all things in common. Collections were taken and and the poor were, were taken care of. Now, we know Christians are not communists. We don't legislate that everything belongs to everyone. We are not communists, but we should think of ourselves as compassionists. We are compassionists with soft hearts toward those in hard times. And look at the last verse. Remember me with favor, O oh my God, for I, all I've done for these people. What's Nehemiah doing there? Is he boasting? Is he looking for works righteousness? No. Just like he did in verse 13, when he ultimately left the judgment to God, he's also leaving the blessing of obedience to God. God, remember me with favor. I'm leaving it with you. Remember me for good, O God. So, One person said, if men forget me, which they may do, If men forget me, let my God think on me, and I desire no more. God knows. God knows the soft heart that you have, as he knows the hard hearts. He knows your soft heart for the poor. He sees the things that are done, even done in secret. There are many times that the left hand shouldn't know what the right hand is doing. But God knows, and God will remember as he says in Hebrews, the good works of his people. We have this promise for soft-hearted, compassionate Christians, a promise that is sometimes fulfilled in this life, but certainly in the life to come. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you.